This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 19th, 2017. Every Monday, I'll be bringing you brand new content, but for the next while, on Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm including previous interviews in this feed, like this one with the journalist Virginia Postrel. She writes for The Atlantic, for Bloomberg View, and others. I hope you enjoy the interview. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. I'm joined on a Skype line now from Los Angeles by Virginia Postrel. She is an author and columnist with Bloomberg View. She writes at vpostrel.com. Virginia, you wrote a while back about what it's like to be on kidney dialysis. Can you tell me why you did it and what it's like? Yes. Um, I never had any particular interest in kidney disease, which is unfortunately one of the very common but not uh acknowledged uh, chronic diseases uh, today until I heard that a friend of mine in Washington, D.C. needed a kidney. Um, and uh, she is a very independent and high achieving woman with a very vigorous life. And when I heard what dialysis uh, involved, I was pretty much appalled at what uh, the effect it might have on her. Um, there are different types of dialysis. Uh, some people do it at home, but the typical experience is that uh, several times a week you go to a dialysis center where you are hooked up uh, to a machine that um, does what kidneys do naturally. Which oh, is, when, when you say hooked up, that's put um, injections essentially into your bloodstream. Uh, you have a um, Usually dialysis patients have a port, which um, I actually had when I was getting chemotherapy, which is a different story. Happy ending. Um, but uh, which allows a, a big needle to be stuck into uh, their body. Uh, and yes, it, 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 it goes, it, it, it filters um, toxins out of the blood, does what the kidneys would normally do. Um, it's a very onerous process if you have to do it this is for very, several hours, very, several it, times a week. It, yes, and it's very debilitating. Um, you also have to stick to a very strict diet. Uh, you don't urinate. I mean, there, there, uh, can, dialysis patients often become very bloated. Uh, there are a lot of side effects. Uh, not surprisingly, um, people on dialysis tend uh, certainly not to work full time. Often they can't work at all. Uh, it's, 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 it's not fun. The good news is you don't die, um, which you would if there weren't dialysis, but mm -hmm. it is a, it's a very difficult way to live. And many people live that way for many, many years, even decades. They, they can't, they can't hold down a job. They can't very often, as you said, but obviously it's very difficult to travel as well. There's a huge time commitment. 
Right. It is very difficult to travel. And you die prematurely is the other thing. I mean, the good news is you don't die right away, which kidney disease will kill you uh, once it gets to a certain point if you don't have dialysis. But many people uh, who sign up in hopes of getting a transplant die while they're still getting dialysis. You uh, then made a decision to help out your friend. Can you tell me what you did? Yeah. So in 2006, so this is nearly 10 years ago, I gave a kidney to my friend Sally. Um, before I told her that I would do it, I did a lot of research online, uh, looking at what the risks were, what, uh, what was involved. And, um, for someone like me who was very healthy, I didn't have, I don't have children, so I didn't have childcare responsibilities. I was self-employed, so I had a flexible schedule, um, and was, I was quite healthy as well. Um, it was, in in my view, kind of a no-brainer. The primary risk was the surgery itself. It is abdo- serious abdominal surgery that takes several hours. Um, you're under general anesthesia. All that has risks. Um, but the 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 risks are, are well the risk of death, which is what mm-hmm. people really worry about, are uh, comparable to it's three in ten thousand. What does that mean? That is comparable to a normal pregnancy after the age of thirty-five, or a normal pregnancy if you're African American. Mm-hmm. And, you know, women over 35 and black women have babies all the time <laughs> and uh, and nobody says, oh, my God, you might die. So, uh, you know, it, it's actually a very safe surgery um, these days in developed countries. It's primarily done uh, laparoscopically, certainly in the United States, which means that they make a very tiny incision, just a couple of inches um, at the most, just big enough to kind of get the kidney out. And um, so you d- it's not like in the old days when people would get their entire uh, front of their body cracked open. Um, so, it, it, you know, there, it's major abdominal surgery. There's some recovery time. Um, takes about a month before you can fully function, ease, you know, uh, but I was able to fly at that time. I was living in Dallas, which is a several hour flight. And I was able to fly home um, after a week. Nevertheless, I mean, you don't you obviously are uh, were extremely generous to your friend. You make the point that it's not that serious, although it is any surgery is serious. Um, why is it that we can't do more transplants from uh, people who have died? Well, there are two reasons. Um, the first one, which gets most of the attention, is that um, not enough people say that they will they will allow their organs to be donated after death. And by the way, kidneys and to some degree livers are the only organs you can take from a living person. So, you know, if you need a heart transplant, you have to have somebody die, for example. Yep. So that's what gets all the attention is not enough people you know, agree to be an organ donor, or even if somebody likes the idea of being an organ donor, often the family will say no. uh, And it's really the family's decision. But the other problem, which doesn't get 
enough attention is that not enough people die in exactly the right way to supply enough kidneys. Um, it's not enough to die in order to be uh, an organ donor. Um, you have to die in such a way that your organs are preserved and, and, and um, you have mm-hmm. you have brain death, but you don't uh, have um, the or, organ, organ death. The, yeah. that organ death. And especially now that uh, we have motorcycle helmets and things like that, uh, you know, uh, good things that increase uh, longevity. Um, there aren't, at least I, I've only looked at the numbers in the United States, but in the United States, even if every single person who died in exactly the right way was an organ donor, there would not be enough kidneys. I mean, there might be enough hearts and some of these other organs, uh, but uh, chronic kidney failure is so common uh it it there there's just not enough supply i i want to look at that a little bit because you said that even if every single person who died the right way had agreed and their family agreed to donate their kidneys there still wouldn't be enough uh, i'm wondering do you know how close does that bring us what proportion of people who die in the right way end up having their their organs used what proportion end up there being some objection either from themselves or their family i i don't know off the top of my head. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but it's again in the U.S. It's roughly half and half. That, that's what that's what I had seen. About fifty percent of people agree. So even if you couldn't necessarily get to an ideal figure, you could double it if uh, everybody agreed uh, to be a donor and those those hurdles weren't there. You mentioned things like uh, even exploring uh, financial incentives. I presume you mean that for living donors. I I do, although there have been uh, um, ideas of doing things like offering uh, to pay funeral expenses uh, for people who are uh, deceased donors. And do you think that would be wise? Do you think if money was inserted into the situation that you were in, that that would uh, make it better? And would it be open to abuse? Well, I think it could be designed so that you um, avoided major abuses. Um, the the one one proposal there's actually a re- a bill recently introduced in, in Congress in the U.S. One proposal uh, would be first of all to start with some trial programs. Secondly, to make uh, require things like uh, waiting periods uh, for people who want to be donors. Uh, also, to make it so that um, it's not a donor to recipient transaction, but rather you know, if you want to uh, sell your kidney, you mm-hmm. go to a kidney uh, transplant center and they screen you the way they would screen a volunteer. Um, and if you got on the, you know, got on the list, um, they would hook you up with the the next person on their waiting list. It wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't. Do, uh, do, do you think that at the end of the day? It would be possible to exclude market forces, which might, for example, put excruciating pressure on some, you know, very poor people or people with a lot of debt to donate organs grudgingly to some very rich people. Well, first of all, the thing that you have to realize, one reason we don't hear as much about this huge problem of kidney disease is that it is primarily a problem 
or uh, disproportionately anyway, a problem of the poor and in the U.S. of African-Americans, they about a third of the people on the waiting list versus 13 percent of the population uh, and uh, uh, Hispanics. So Mm -hmm. it is a disease of uh, people who are from poor backgrounds or they're poor because they can't work because they're on dialysis. One one way Um, or another, it's associated with poverty. and, And so. If, if if your primary concern is that, you could design a system so that you uh, mostly had rich people giving to poor people by, say, offering very generous tax credits, uh, um, which would only be good if you had a lot of income. I mean, I don't think that that's not the way I would design a system. But How, if, how would you if, design it? Um, I would design a system that would be sort of like what I described, where there would be um, – it would work through transplant centers and through normal forms of insurance, whether government or private. Um, it would be part of the transplant process in the same way that the surgeon is part of the transplant process and his or her fee and all the the uh, you know mm-hmm. the the drugs and everything you know everything else. It would it would be and and then if people wanted to donate to friends or loved ones. They could do that separately without payment, but this would be uh, a way. And there would be set amounts. But this, I'm, I'm trying to remember um, a study, I think it was done in Israel, where they attempted to fine parents for arriving late and picking up their kids at a kindergarten. And it turned out that the parents started arriving later because they just viewed that fine as a fee for the kindergarten looking after their kids longer, do you think that once you've introduced money into the system at all, it's possible to have a parallel system that doesn't have money in it? Um, I think it's possible. I mean, it, we have we have people paid for egg donation. People get pregnant in the normal way. Um, it's not an exact parallel. But, I, 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 um, I think and, there's and, some or, exceptions you know. there. A, a better, uh, you know, a better thing might be artificial insemination because I do know people who uh, have donated sperm to friends where there were gay couples or whatever Mm -hmm. but um the it is conceivable uh however i think that um first of all there are some there are some issues with that israeli study but uh um but nevertheless which i can't remember exactly what they were but but the 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 general point stands that once you introduce pricing into a system it's very hard to have the same goods priced and unpriced in the market Right. Let the question to me is: Do more people get transplants or not? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm concerned with getting people off of dialysis and getting them transplants and getting them as healthy as they can be. Um, and it might be that uh, there were. I think it's it's quite likely that there would be fewer. Uh, voluntary donations. However, I think it's quite unlikely that there would be um, a net loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, L- let me suggest. So, so then, uh, let, let me just finish. Go ahead, yes. However, people who work on this issue full time, um, including my uh, recipient, Sally Sattel, um, they really think that there are too many unknowns and that we need to do some small pilot programs that are much more modest. I mean, you asked me for my ideal scenario, um, but what people are talking about in terms of actual, you know, something that might happen is some small pilot programs that deal not in cash, but in other types of incentives. 
Let, let me give a suggestion in that case. Um, and my suggestion would be to force a choice. And I certainly would have no objection personally donating my organs after my I'm, after I'm dead. I don't think I'll have much use for them. But I haven't done anything really about it. I don't have a donor card in my wallet. And it's not for any ideological reason. It's just because I'm lazy. Um, but if you introduce a system whereby you couldn't get a driver license or perhaps an ATM card without making a choice. You're free to make whatever choice you want, but you must make the choice in order to get that and have that information either printed or maybe encoded electronically on both of those items. I think that you'd have an awful lot more donors. Well, I actually, I mean, I don't know what it's like where you are, but I mean, when you get a driver's license in California, they do ask you that question. And but but, but I, I have an American driving license. Maybe it's changed since I got it. But on my one, there was just a, a space that I could tick a box and make a signature on the back. Uh, I guess most people who don't tick the box and don't sign it, it don't do it just because they haven't really given it any thought. If they were saying they if they were told you have to check yes or no when you don't get the license until you've made uh, the decision yeah. that, that might not, be more effective yeah so so it would be sort of like when you do your taxes there's this checkoff form where you have to say yes or no do you want one dollar to go to public financing of campaigns exactly. i don't know i you know i i can't remember whether how it was when i got my driver's license that would certainly be a simple change where it uh, I don't know how big a difference it would make, but it, that would certainly be something that would be easy to do. Um, to well, the, se the second portion of what I'm suggesting is that if somebody says that they have an objection to uh, organ donation, you say, fine, but if you don't give one, you don't get one. Yeah, that's a pop. You know, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of smart people with a um, who, who like that idea. Um, and and there was actually somebody who tried to set up a. A complex system for for making uh, making that work um i have problems with that um i think that first of all when you consider that very few people will even be in a situation where they might potentially be organ donors um it it's 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 a little it's a little coercive for the gain the possible gain we don't attach conditions um for all kinds of of you know public Goods. We don't say, you know, mm -hmm. the, this is a sort of, a, I, I guess, a slippery slope argument. You know, we don't say if you don't give blood, you, you know, you don't get blood in the hospital. Uh, uh, I, I understand, but I think, I know, think the situation is slightly different. If you don't volunteer work at the police department, you don't get police protection. You, uh, no, you know, yes, yes. You but I think the situation is slightly different because where in this case, if somebody is saying that they have a principled objection for whatever reason to organ transplants, then it stands to reason that they don't want to receive one any more than they want to get one. Well, I think that you're assuming an awful lot of um, thought on the part of people. I mean, I think most people, most yeah, people. Yeah, and you're forcing, like you, forcing the thought. Uh, you know, even if even if they have to make a decision, they say, you know, they'll often say no, either because they just rather have their family decide. They can't envision the circumstances. They want the option. Um, there, you know, there are a lot of a lot of things going on there. Very, almost nobody 
is saying it's because I've carefully thought it through and decided I'm against organ transplant. Yeah, exactly. But that's that's what my suggestion is is designed to catch. For the people who have thought it through and are really against it, you give them an out, and the out is not inappropriate. Clearly, if they're against organ transplants in the terms of giving, they're also in, against it in terms of receiving. Uh, but for the people who haven't really thought about it, you make them think about it. And uh, overwhelmingly, I guess they'd say, yeah, sure, I might need it one day. I'll tick the box. It doesn't cost me anything to tick it. Yeah. And you also get into some very difficult and deep cultural issues. Um, there's a very good book uh, called Black Markets um, by a legal scholar named Michelle Goodwin that is about um, organs and, and the African-American mm -hmm. And it really changed my mind on a lot of things like that had to do with opting out of um, of cadaver donations and, and that sort of thing. Because, and again, this is specific to the United States, but there is a really horrific history of um, medical abuse. I mean, the Tuskegee experiments are the fam most famous one, but mm -hmm. but it used to be of of frankly, grave robbing. Uh, Southern medicals used to have better anatomy departments because they would just like go and dig up black people's bodies and, and, you know, use them for anatomy class. This is post-slavery, by the way. This mm -hmm. is not during slavery. Uh, during slavery, this is even worse. But um, And the result is that sort of bodily integrity and, um, and it, it became even more important in that community. And the... Um, also, the suspicion of the medical community is much greater. Now, then you think about one-third of the people on the kidney waiting list are black. Do I want to say that because of this history, those people can't get cadaver donations? No, I do not. Personally, my emphasis is on encouraging living donation, not on the incentive side that we've talked about, but just on under the current uh, under the current system, encouraging more people to consider greater awareness. Being, uh, greater awareness. Uh, I I think people need to understand that it is it is not a you know heroic but horrifying thing to do you know there, there's this like double-edged thing before you're a kidney donor everybody tells you oh god you can't do that and then afterwards oh you're a wonderful hero and really it's neither one it's just you know one of the many potential things you can do to help another person and for you it, it wasn't such a big deal no it really wasn't i mean and and i will say after you know, later on, as I kind of alluded to, I had cancer. I had quite a lot of – it does not caused I, – I quickly say this has nothing to do with a kidney transplant. I'm just saying I went through a very tough round of, can, of breast cancer treatments, mm -hmm. um, and in no at no time in that did the fact that I have had only caused me any problem. Um, the only problem that I have as a result of being a kidney donor is that I can't take ibuprofen or similar drugs, uh, which I have something that's like arthritis in one of my fingers, and that's, you know, a bit of an issue. But you, know, you, you can kind of live with that. It's, it's not really a big deal. I think I think that's something you can live with. Um, Virginia Postrel, author and columnist with Bloomberg View. She writes at vpostrel.com. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free 
using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See challengingopinions.com backslash subscribe for details. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on April 19th, 2017. I have links in the show notes to Virginia's website and some of her writing and other references for things we talked about in the interview. And do you know someone else who I should interview? And what topics should I be covering? I'd really be interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you can do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating, and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO. You can also follow Virginia Postrel at VPostrel. And most importantly, subscribe to the show. It's free. You can use iTunes if you're an Apple person or Google Play Music if you're on Android. There's links for both of those and there's the RSS feed if you're old school there as well. You can get them all or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming on Friday, that's April 21st, I'll have an interview with the left-wing blogger Larry Erickson. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.